Many companies seem to frequently be in a state of flux these days, whether it's a CEO or other leadership transition, mergers and acquisitions, or divestitures. Organizational change is the new normal. Reductions in force, reorganizations, facility moves or closures, and uncertainty in the business climate and financial markets are triggering anxious moments on a regular basis. In this episode of Can You Hear Me? Co-hosts Eileen Rochford and Rob Johnson welcome special guest Howard Karish, a veteran corporate communications expert, to discuss how to keep employees engaged through these tumultuous times. Hello again, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Can You Hear Me? podcast. I'm Eileen Rochford, CEO of the marketing and strategy firm, The Harbinger Group. And I'm Rob Johnson, president of Rob Johnson Communications. As you know, on this podcast and in our day jobs, Eileen and I are hyper-focused on how to help our clients when it comes to overcoming communications barriers and articulating their message and value proposition clearly and uniformly. But what happens when there's something very sensitive happening, like a CEO or other leadership change, mergers and acquisitions, organizational change, like workforce reductions and reorganizations, and just the general anxiety that has become a part of life during the global pandemic? It's a lot to chew on, right? A lot to consider indeed, Rob. And that's why today we've enlisted the expertise of Howard Karish to help us unpack all of this. So Howard is a seasoned communications senior leader with more than 25 years of experience, including a dozen years at major PR firms and stints at LaSalle Bank, Exelon Corporation, and Hillrun, which was a Chicago-based medical technology company acquired in December 2021 by Baxter International. Howard held the post of Vice President of Corporate Communications at Hillrun during a time of tremendous changes. And on a personal note, I've known Howard, I would say nearly all of those 25 years, Howard, um, because we started off together as interns at Golan, where we had a ton of fun causing all kinds of trouble and just, you know, hijinks and hilarity throughout the halls as the silly interns. And those were good days. And thank you for being with us, my good friend. We're thrilled to have you as our guest today on Can You Hear Me? Thank you for having me. It is a long time. It's 27 years. But who's counting? Why are you telling people how old I am, Howard? That's so rude. I'm telling them how old I am. And if people can do the math on their own, that has stopped already. Eileen was a child prodigy. She was. Kindergarten. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Yes. That's right. Absolutely. So, yes. Thanks for being here. You and I go way, way, way back. I know uh, tons about you, but mostly the good things. And really how super smart you are and um, all the things that you've experienced in the corporate communications world. So thanks for joining us to share your insights, knowledge, and experiences with our listeners today. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to participate. So, okay. Are you ready? Because here's your first question. Yes, let's roll. So you talk about employee engagement frequently in your LinkedIn posts. And I have to say, I really enjoy reading so much of what you post on LinkedIn. It's so thoughtful. Um, And I appreciate um, people who really put time and effort into what they put up on LinkedIn. Um, What what I'm wondering though, is why the topic of employee engagement in particular, why is that of such great interest to you, say more so than other things that kind of go on in our complex communications world? In my earlier years in the agency world, I fell in love with 
the employee communications component of corporate communications for the single reason was that I got to be my own audience because I'm an employee. And so I was able, even at a relatively early age, to put myself in the shoes of somebody impacted by the words, the videos, whatever the communication vehicles that I was putting together. If I was an employee, what would I want to hear at this particular time of change? What would I want to hear at this particular time of crisis? Or what would I want to hear when everything's going great and there's really nothing major to worry about? So that element, uh, a player manager, if you will, of having the opportunity to provide not just strategy, but to be the audience has made for a wonderful career and, and a really fun way to make a living. So it really all starts there. And all of the stuff that, that Rob mentioned in the intro, CEO transitions and layoffs and facility closures and all the organizational change and pandemic that we've all gone through, um, the common denominator in all of those is the single most important audience, which is the employees impacted by whatever it is that's going on. I think it's a really important point you're bringing up, Howard, because I think a lot of companies, especially when the pandemic began, and we don't need to go revisit that in, in too great detail, but everybody uniformly, it seemed like, had, a, had an issue with how do we reach out to these people that are now working remotely? We, we could run into them in the hallways. We could have these meetings in person. We could see them at the coffee machine, and now we don't have it, so it needed to be intentional, and how do we do this? And how do we keep them engaged? And there is so much uncertainty around that particular issue, but the other issues that we're bringing up here today that cause for a little anxiety on the employee front, and you need to be front and center. And I love the fact that you were, you loved it. You love talking about this because you're part of the audience. And that's a really interesting uh, piece of this equation. You know, 10 years from now, five years from now, the story will be written about how did all of us communicators pivot to handle the difference between before March 11th or whatever the date was and, and after. Uh, you know, for the most recent company I was at, Hillrom, we completely changed the way we handled employee town halls. But realized that a lot of companies don't just have knowledge workers sitting at laptops like this one at home. We've got people in power plants, factories, delivery companies, restaurants, frontline workers, how do you reach those people? They were already the hardest ones to reach. What do you do now when there's a have and have nots? Some people get to stay home and work and others have to go in. So in an environment like the pandemic, which has been all encompassing, but even think beyond that, how do you reach those that are already difficult to reach when things get more challenging? And there's not really an amazing answer to that beyond face-to-face. Um, and we have come up, the Royal, we have come up with better ways to reach those in, in uh, manufacturing facilities and call centers and places where they're not sitting on email and Slack all day long. Um, but there's a history there waiting to be told that will judge whether we were or were not successful in reaching everybody equally as well, no matter what type of job they had. Mm -hmm. I'm really curious to hear just a little bit about something you touched on a second ago, Howard. Um, how you had to, at Hillrom, pivot to reach all of those people who were already hard to reach. Could you talk about that for a little while? I'm sure our listeners would like to hear, you know, concretely, um, the changes that you made and, you know, the effects that you saw, were, they, were those changes successful, things like that. I'd love to hear more about it. Sure. So let me um, try and briefly 
capture what we were dealing with. You've got a company with 10,000 people, some 6,000 of whom had to continue going to work. They had to make the medical devices, deliver, fix, install. Um, and then another 3,500, 4,000 were sent home. So on the one hand, you've got this dichotomy that I already mentioned. On the other, you've got people in all these different locations where we had a fairly early lead on the start of the pandemic because we had people in China. So it was very much an east to west, follow the sun kind of a, a communication strategy. How do you start reaching people where they are? And what we ended up doing, and this was not just a communications decision, but an organizational environmental health and safety decision, we appointed leads at each individual facility that would serve an operational role, an HR role. In many cases, those were our human resources people, but also would be the on-site go-tos for reliable information. So center-led, so globally relevant, but applied locally. So a lot of the key messages may have come from corporate here in Chicago, and it happened to be in Chicago. Um, but we really empowered people on the ground to make decisions that were best for the people that they were physically closest to, geographically closest to. For me, to, for example, for me to make a decision in Chicago on what should happen in the office in Amsterdam makes no sense without a leader in Amsterdam there to, to advocate for whatever his or her position might be. So you had this collection of people who were highly engaged, very well-trained, very well-educated about what the company was going for and then able to apply that locally. So that's dealing with the situation locally on the ground. From an enterprise level, how do you strengthen a culture when everybody is dispersed? There's no more in-office anything. Even those who were going to work were prohibited from gathering, social distancing, masks. It's, we're I think we might be forgetting just how challenging it was exactly 24 months ago. China was dying, Italy was dying, New York was dying. We did not know what was going on. And so we were trying to make decisions that not just kept the lights on, but kept our culture strong. Because if your culture starts to break apart, you lose some of the engagement. And Hilram, now acquired by Baxter, is a medical device company that had some couple dozen products that the world badly needed. ICU and regular hospital beds, ventilators, blood pressure, thermometry, patient vital signs. I mean, those words and phrases came up constantly in the early media coverage. So how do you maintain a culture? How do you maintain engagement? And it was our job as communicators, not just to help people get the information they needed so that they would stay safe, but to get the information, perhaps inspiration, influence they needed to stay engaged, not only in what they were doing, but with the environment at our company more broadly in which they were doing it. And I would like to think that, that we on the communications team uh, played a, a reasonably um, impactful role in helping not just keep the lights on and keep the culture together, that's, that's, that's the lowest common denominator, but strengthening that culture and really keep, keeping people not just on the ball, but proud and happy that they were able to contribute in a meaningful way to a global disaster. I'm really glad you brought that up, Howard, because I know that was a challenge for so many companies about how do we engage them? How do we 
reconnect with them when we're disconnected. So I'm glad that you brought that up and I'm glad you explained it in some detail about you know, what, what you all did that was successful. I want to talk about industry consolidation. It seems to be a constant. Sometimes it comes in waves. It depends on market conditions and a myriad of other factors, but companies buy and sell themselves every day. And you want to talk about employee uncertainty and is my job going to be around? What's the future look like? Kind of talk us through the employee experience on either side of the transaction when this becomes a reality for your company and you have everybody understandably skeptical and nervous. You know, over, over the years, I've developed a point of view that I don't think is unique to me or even especially insightful, but it is that employees can handle news that they don't want to hear. What they have a more difficult time with is the uncertainty around what's going on. So, you know, I've been part of, I don't even know how many transactions I've been bought a couple of times, have been on the buying side a bunch of times, divested a company or so. Um, as work with all the companies that I've had the pleasure of working for. Um, and those are inherently uncertain situations for employees that very often include news that employees don't want to hear. There are executives who leave. There are uh, departments that are closed down. There are facilities that are consolidated. Um, and of course, inevitably, um, as companies come together, very often there are redundant positions and you only need one person to do X. So the goal in communication throughout any sort of M&A situation is certainty. And that comes with some responsibility on the communicator's part, um, responsibilities that include basic concepts like candor and transparency and honesty and clarity without resorting to acronym-laden jargon, jargon that nobody really understands. So I can handle being told that there's going to be a change to my group. I can handle being told that I myself might have to look for something new. What I can't handle is not getting that information in a timely manner. What I can't handle is people not being straightforward in communicating what is about to happen. I would much rather upset somebody with a politely and kindly delivered truth then dance around something and create uncertainty in the environment. So if you look at what has to happen on the positive side for a transaction to go well, you need people engaged. You need people to understand the vision um, and the strategic value of a particular transaction and get them excited about it. Not every ounce of a transaction is going to be fun for everybody. But if you communicate what's going on in a way that is enticing and engaging and can with candid candor, excuse me, and with truth, you know, somewhat counterintuitively, you can actually boost engagement during these times of uncertainty. And I've seen it happen way more than once. Um, and it's doable, but it takes a little bit of that philosophy to find its way into the communication strategy and the execution to make that possible, to make it possible and to make it true. So I'd love to hear about one of those experiences where uh, you used that situation uh, to kind of create a, a positive outcome. Um, can you recall one? It doesn't have to be your most recent, but any. Just kind of describe what went down and how you guys um, delivered communications to make sure it was a culture strengthening 
opportunity. Sure, I'll go back to something that's sort of a, a little bit distant. This is probably, I'll say about 10 years old and I was working in the, um, in the utility business. And the company I was with uh, did a very sizable acquisition, six, seven, eight billion dollars, um, and bought another very large company. Um, and when two very large companies come together, one of the one of the things that I like to tell those who ask me about this is that whether you buy a company of five people, which in my Hillrom days we did, or twenty five hundred people, there's not that much different that you're doing. It's a simply a matter of scale. You still need solid key messages. You still need solid executive communications. You still need to prepare for, for the external communications piece of it. You still need to prepare for social and investment and web and all of the other audiences that you need to take care of. It's just a matter of how many people are on the receiving end of your communication. So think of it as a matter of scale. But when you acquire a very, very large company, that scale can get in the way because you have so many more people whose uncertainty you're trying to satisfy or correct, and so many more um, people to deal with from an org chart and uh, what a former colleague called the boxology. You know, which positions do I really need in this company? And they're boxes, not yet names and people, but boxes. And that um, can be very challenging, especially if you're the company that's being bought. It's a little bit easier to be on the buying side. You know, the incumbent, at least many would think, uh, has, the, has the upper hand. Um, but we bought a very, very large company, and I was extraordinarily proud of the very proactive communication plan that we put in place, which included regular touch points across a variety of different communication vehicles, just to, not to keep people on their toes, but to keep them interested. And certain things were consistent. We did a newsletter every 14 days, for example. And then we would do one-off communications, maybe a video, maybe a live stand-up meeting at a certain location. We kept the information flowing. Um, and I, uh, and I, I use all of that background to tell you the following, that from an outcomes perspective, one of the things that I'm very, very proud of is that the employee engagement score in the wake of that transaction was higher than it was for the parent company before, which is something of a minor miracle because you expect with all that disruption on both sides of the company that at that time had probably 28 or 30,000 people in it, the numbers are not in your favor. So if you're able to boost engagement after an extraordinary corporate change like that, you've done something right. And the something right is treating your colleagues like the adult professionals that they are, leveling with them. Uh, it doesn't mean you have to be mean. It doesn't mean you have to hit them over the head with a hammer, but it does mean that you need to be really, really clear and speak in. In that situation, it was everybody in the US, plain English. In Hillrom's case, we had people all over the world. So then not only were we dealing with multiple languages, but different cultures and different ways of communicating within those cultures, which only amps up the complexity, but the principle is still the same. Candid, well-informed, clear communication, the goal of which is to give people more certainty. So that's one, I won't even call it a war story because it went so well. Um, but those are the types of things that, that those of us who are looking at communications from a higher strategic level really need to keep top of mind. How do I keep people engaged when you would think you don't even have a chance of doing so? And that's where, to borrow one of your phrases from earlier in this broadcast, that's a little bit of where the magic is.
I'm so glad you just said that because I remember when all this was going on and I'm advising clients. And now I have Howard Karish, who's been doing this for decades, saying this is the way to do it, candor and transparency. Because yeah. that was what I was urging them. And I remember somebody in my old business telling everybody when things were not going well, it's all great. We're just fine. No problem. And then two weeks later, you have a bloodbath. You lose 100% credibility when you do that. And it speaks to your point about people can handle bad news as long as they get treated like adults. And as long as you're leveling with them, you're not going to give them the keys to the kingdom and tell them everything that's going on internally, but give them a little something, show them a little respect. And that'll go a long way, even when the news isn't good. Yeah. One of my favorite professors at Loyola University of Chicago, this goes back 500 years, is a fellow named Dr. Mike Cornett, and it was a great class. And uh, one of the things I most remember from his class is he said, never underestimate the crap detector that other people have embedded in their brains. They will see right through you. So don't waste your time on a horrible, loosey-goosey, um, bury it under the rug communication. That is never a good idea. Now, at the same time, transparency doesn't mean tell everybody everything right at the start. It means you tell them the information that you can, when you can, and you can be over transparent and bury people in information. And that's a good way to hide stuff too. So there's a balance there and it takes some seasoning to get it right, right? Yeah. Um, if I send you a nine-page white paper, your eyes are going to glaze over. But if I send you 150 words of clarity, I've got you. You may not love it, but at least you're going to be respected by somebody else who's telling you what you need to know. Yeah. One thing that I want to pull out from uh, all of that um, gold that you just uh, gave us is your point that uh, employee engagement actually rose after... Yes. The, the, I think it was the utilities example that you gave during that time period. And it, I'll also say, you know, we've all witnessed in the last couple of years that throughout the pandemic in particular, um, despite the barrage of communications and the need to communicate so much more with employees and partners and constituents than we ever had before or really thought we needed to, we also saw a spike in engagement during that time period. Um, so those things tell us something pretty powerful. I think that uh, the more that you communicate, as long as it is on target, relevant information that's delivered, you know, both concisely and powerfully and in the right way, in terms of the mechanisms, um, you can increase employee engagement. Most people think if you communicate too much, people are just going to shut it out. Like, for example, I'll tell you, I, I can't tell, tell you how many companies we ask, could we do an employee survey on this topic? Um, or would you participate in this particular activity that requires an employee survey? And the answer we get more frequently than ever before is no, because they're so protective of that type of communication with employees because they're afraid they're gonna tune it out, disengage, right? So it's, it's pretty interesting for me to hear, you know, you say in, several instances over the last, uh, you know, two to 10 years that the, the more frequent and the well better in communications are happening, you're increasing engagement with your employees. So that's a pretty solid lesson for our listeners, in my it opinion. Is. <laughs> it is. I do want to pick up on something though, and, and okay. peel that back one more layer if I can. Do. You mentioned frequency 
and you yeah. mentioned relevance. And those can occasionally be at odds. Um, for example, I mentioned the every 14 day newsletter. What I told uh, my colleagues then and say to colleagues now is we're gonna publish a newsletter every two weeks, except for when we don't. Yeah. Because if you don't have relevant insightful content to offer, publishing something just to say you did, kind yeah, of a terrible reason. That's like doing mm -hmm. something because that's the way you always did it. Um, now. Part of our job as communicators is to mine the organizations for appropriate content. So we have to do the work yeah. and there is work there, but to publish something for the sake of publishing, when there's nothing really in there of value, or there's no what's in it for me, there's no call to action. That's where the frequency and the relevance miss one another. Mm -hmm. um, so yes, frequency is important but so is the quality of that content, the relevance of that content. If you give somebody something that's relevant to them, you've done your job. Mm -hmm. And if you keep creating something that's irrelevant, they're going to tune you out quicker than you want. They're going to tune you out and you are just spilling ink for the purpose of staying busy during the day. Yeah. Yeah. Really good points. Shall we transition, Rob, to talk about the topic of change? Mm. <laughs> I'll take that as a yes. So our affirmative. <laughs> affirmative. Thank you. Um, you know, we all hear phrases like change management and other things, uh, the, the phrase of the day, if you will. Um, but what I would love to hear you talk about is what that looks like from a communicator's vantage point. Change and, and all that goes along with it. So part of it is and where it starts is really understanding what is the change that the organization is about to go through and it could be something as significant as a ceo departing and another arriving regardless of the circumstances um, and all the ceo transitions that i have been through trying to think quickly now have all been there's no malfeasance nobody did anything weird or wrong it was, they retired or it was time for them to move on and do something else. And so there was a friendly transfer of power, but that can be very destabilizing. And what's destabilizing for the CEO's direct reports could be trickle down destabilizing for everybody else. But it could also be something as, hey, we're putting in a new timesheet system or we're giving everybody and, you know, we're going to switch from, remember CC mail? Oh, God, yeah. We had that at one job I had and the happiest day of my life was the transition to Outlook. Yes. So, um, but I mean, there, there's change and then there's change, right? Change at the top is only so relevant to people, but you change their everyday timesheet program, change their email program, go from- Benefits Google package. Mm -hmm. Google, right? Change <laughs> benefits, go from, uh, for example, an HMO to a high deductible plan. Challenging. Very. Very challenging. So- yeah. There's change and then there's change. Common to all of those elements from a communicator's perspective is number one, really understanding the what, really understanding why the company is doing that change, truly understanding what is the impact on employees, and you can group them broadly, um, and then seeing around the corner. Because you really need to have to have this, this a, a drop of a crystal ball, a little bit of prophetic capability to understand. If I make this change on January 1, what am I going to be hearing on February 15th? And how likely am I to stop hearing it by April 1st? 
So the idea from a communicator's perspective, and this is separate from whatever training might need to be done, right? Which is, is usually gonna be somebody else's role to fill. But the communicator's job is to paint that picture. Here's where we are. Here's where we're going. Here's where we are going, excuse me. And here's where we need you to join with us along the way. So if it's a new CEO or if it's a new timesheet program, I would argue that the new CEO, a lot easier to handle. Because I don't need to do anything if there's a new CEO. I might show up when she does for a town hall meeting in my location. I might send him or her a welcome note. I might want to get to know that person depending on my role or, or where I am in the organization. But that's much more on the interpersonal skills. But if I went from, you know, timesheet program A to timesheet program B, and I'm a factory worker and I've never used anything online before, but now I have to use a kiosk, but I don't have my own login. I mean, you can just imagine the complexity that you introduce into an organization. So the idea from a communicator's perspective is understand all of those impacts. Educate in, in language, and I don't mean just French, English, Spanish, whatever, but in, in, uh, in, cl in a clear language that people can understand so they know what is their role, what do they need to do or not do, by when, and who is there to help them. If we don't have all of that really, really clear in our heads, we're going to blow it, and we can't afford to blow it because I, I would argue that communicators are not the only people involved in change management, certainly not but change management can't happen without us. Yep. You mentioned one thing that I want to um, ask you to talk a little bit more about, which is you just touched on needing to understand the why behind the change that's taking place. Do you think it's always important to share that why with employees? I think without it, Oh, go ahead, Rob. I was going to say, or is that providing too much information as we talked about a little bit earlier? So, uh, so uh, that's a good two-part question. Let's, let's pick at that for a second. Um, in, I would, in most situations, I think the why matters to people. A simple example. Um, your colleagues, uh, we're sorry to, to announce that, uh, you know, Eileen Rochford, is, uh, is departing the company effective yesterday and uh, here to come in as the new intergalactic director of doorknob washing is Mr. Rob Johnson. All right. Fine. Oh, they were just thrown so, down on that. So now we're replacing oh me. So what do we know? Right? <laughs> She's your in replaceable. In that situation, what do we know? All we know is that Eileen left under weird, spooky, mysterious circumstances yesterday and nobody told us in advance and that now Rob is in charge. What's missing? You're missing a narrative. You're missing a story. You're missing a, we have an opportunity to do a far better job of doorknob washing. And we made the difficult decision that a leadership change is part of what we need to do to make that happen. And I think companies hide behind that because they don't want to hurt anybody's feelings and they want people to go out with grace as they should. And maybe that's not the best example, but I think the why matters because without the why, You've told half a story. But what if the why is kind of BS? I mean, what if it's like Eileen left yesterday and we don't know why? And then they try to paint, well, she's going to pursue other opportunities, some mealy mouth answer. Because you see that a lot too, Howard. Is, is it, 
is it better to say something than to say nothing? Or if you say something that seems a little disingenuous, do you just dig yourself a deeper hole? So my, my, I, I can't speak for every company in the world. I can only speak for myself. Um, very often, or at least often, that language is up to the departing employee, which I think is a very graceful way to handle things like that. Um, my personal preference, if that's not a factor, is to not offer a reason for a particular individual's departure, but to absolutely acknowledge that they will be leaving or have left the company. The story doesn't need to involve why they're leaving. The story needs to involve why is the future that we are pursuing relevant. So that's the, the story is not Eileen was a bad doorknob washer. The story is here's why Rob's leadership is right for this company at this time in this particular role. People can derive and deduce whatever they want about Eileen, and there's only so much you can prevent people's brains from thinking whatever they want. But to tell the forward-looking future growth story, that's critical. Otherwise, you've done a personnel announcement and yay for you, but you haven't achieved very much other than a personnel announcement. You've told not one person what they can look forward to. You've told that is one such person, good advice, Howard. That's not great one advice. person. What's their role? All they know is that Johnson's in charge, and who gives a crap? And what I love about it is um, everyone's mind, in, a, in this example that you gave, would instantly go to, "What happened to her? Why is she yeah. leaving?" But and, and let me check Google and see if Johnson's a good doorknob washer. I mean, this guy <laughs> don't even know if he's any good at this. Guy. Please. <laughs> don't right. trust that guy. Come on. Well, you know, Howard, communications progress can sometimes be a hard thing to quantify. And I run into this sometimes with people, they want an ROI, they want a hard number, whatever the case may be. So how can companies know whether they are successful in abstract areas like culture and engagement where you can't put a dollar sign on it necessarily? Um, for another conversation is whether you can or cannot put a dollar sign on it. But the easiest way Ready? Ready? Ask, ask them. What? So at, at most of the companies that I've been at for the last 15 years, let's leave the agency world out of it because it's a bit of a different animal. <clears throat> Excuse me. Companies do annual and many do biannual massive employee engagement survey, dozens of questions with an outside vendor regression analysis, huge PowerPoints that take training to understand. And I like that actually. I think it's a very, very helpful tool, especially if you get really good analytics and you can really dig in to help companies understand where they are. The problem with it, um, and I'm not the first to recognize this, is that it's moment in time. And I posted about this on LinkedIn within the last couple of weeks. Let's say I do a survey in January of 2022, and I spend three weeks of that survey open, and we beg, borrow, plead, whatever we can do to get people to fill this thing out. Then, you know, it's a 60 days, maybe we get some analytics back from the outside company, we absorb it, we socialize it, we meet the CEO, CFO, CHRO. How, how are we gonna position this? What do we share? What do we hold back? What are our action plans? Roll it out to leaders, roll it out to all employees. Next thing you know, it's May. All right, so now you've got data that's four months old. Doesn't mean it's useless. In fact, it's very useful, but it's still four months old. So what a lot of companies are doing now which I think is a very, very good idea, is they might do some version 
of a very big, very detailed um, employee engagement survey every couple of years, but they're punctuating with very, very short, and I mean short, one question, two questions, three questions, pulse surveys all along the way. So that you know, let's say your big three themes um, are employee advancement, communications, and leadership connectivity. Let's say those are the big three findings from your all-employee engagement survey. You want to wait two years to figure out whether you know what the hell you're doing on any of those topics? No. So you've got to ask people. Ask them frequently. Ask them simply. And you're going to start to see a trend very, very quickly. I'll give you one somewhat related example. When I was at Hillram, we bought a, a small company, small-ish, 180 people based in Sarasota, Florida. Brilliant group, uh, very successful acquisition. Their, their specialty was mobile technology and hospitals. So for example, um, if, uh, you know, if Eileen is the patient and Eileen needs help, the right caregiver will get a notice, notice on their particular mobile device to go to room 242 because Eileen needs has assistance getting out of a hospital bed. So we buy this company and we always do a benchmarking survey just to get a, a lay of the land. What are we dealing with culturally? The second survey showed a bit of a challenge in the communications area. And I'm not afraid to share this because we learned a lot from it. People wanted more, better, different, faster, cheaper, whatever it was that they wanted, we needed to do a better job. And we were able to take that feedback, which came at, let's say the 60 day mark after, uh, after the acquisition closed and immediately make changes. I mean, like that on the fly, quick meeting, new plan, go. And we knew 30 days after that, that we were on the right track. If we had waited a year, what do you put at risk after spending hundreds of millions of dollars, tens of millions of dollars, whatever it is, by flying blind? Too much, I would argue. So yes, do the big survey, do it every year, every couple of years, that's fine. But if you don't ask in between, you're missing an opportunity to really get the data that will help you move the needle along that two-year path. Well, that's so smart. Mm -hmm. um, quick follow-up. It, so it, it, it sounds so obvious, but too no, many of us not so much, yeah. don't do it. I don't know. It sounds obvious to me, but I didn't do it either. <laughs> so pulse surveys are uh, so, just rich with opportunity. Um, what advice would you give for um, increasing engagement with your pulse surveys? I've just been hearing a little bit from a couple of our clients about declining participation in those. Do you have any thoughts? Well, the issue is survey fatigue. Right. Right. If Are you giving me 50 surveys a year? Are you kidding me? I'm going to go out of my mind, even if it's one or two questions. Yeah. So the, the, the only insight I can offer, regardless of whether you do it once a month or every two months or whatever it is, is help people understand that you're listening. Okay. Title of your podcast, Can You Hear Me? Yeah, I hear you and I'm listening and I'm acting. If you can go to somebody and say, hey, on, what's today, May 2nd? On, on May 1st, we asked you this. By May 3rd, we had our answer. And on May 4th, you said, you know what? Thank you for that feedback. Here's what we're gonna do differently. Aren't they gonna be much more likely to answer your question the next time when they know that you're paying attention? If you're asking all these questions and then they go into a black hole somewhere. Of course they'll tune you out, yeah. Of course, why, yeah. why listen? You're ignoring me. You want my time, my brain work. I'm busy with all this other stuff you gave me to do. And now you want me to answer questions and then you're ignoring my answers? Yeah. Don't ask. Great point. Thank you. So I have, um, I believe this may be our last question. Um, oh, no. 
I think so. <laughs> um, so you shared with us before, um, you know, we invited you to be a guest, you know, when you were kind of t- proving to us that you should be. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it was a very difficult vetting process. Oh, <laughs> uh, let me tell you. Can you make uh, Eileen make laugh? Check is in the mail. Um, <laughs> well, so you shared um, that you believe an inside out communication strategy is essential. Just curious what, what you meant by that. And I think explaining that would also be of uh, interest and value to our listeners. So I am, uh, because Hellrom was acquired, I'm actually in the search process now for my next great gig. And uh, a, a job description that I came across recently had a, whatever the title was, and the job description was written entirely focused on external communications, media relations, influencer relations, web, social, brand, you get it, entirely external. And uh, I said to the individual I was on the phone with after reading this, I said, you realize that this is a wonderful opportunity, but it's half of a position. You've left out the single most important audience. Let's say I land a front page story on the Wall Street Journal for you, but you haven't bothered to tell your employees, your approach, your strategy, your dream, your ideas, how they can get involved, how they can help. That story is about as good as the paper it's printed on, maybe, because you forgot to include the people who have to bring whatever it is you're talking about to life. So when I talk about the inside out strategy, it's wonderful to get articles out there and it's wonderful to have a social strategy to engage your customers. If your employees are not aligned with your vision and mission, if your employees are not acting in complete accordance with your values, if your employees are not focused on a diverse, inclusive, equitable workforce where people feel that they belong, Anything you say outside your company is, keep it appropriate, family program, bogus. It's bogus, right? So if you don't have employees as your frontline ambassadors, and it doesn't mean rah-rah parties every week with balloons and popcorn in the office, it does not mean that, but it does mean sincere internal communications, sincere communications that help build a culture, a culture that allows innovation to thrive a culture that allows engagement to be strong and consistent. If you don't have all of those things in play, at some point people start to see through your media coverage and you've got the corporate equivalent of an empty suit. So when I talk about an inside out strategy, I mean, take care of the inside so that the inside can take care of the outside. Take care of your employees because without them, the outside, you don't have a chance at succeeding with your customers. And, and it goes beyond that too, Howard. We're talking about, you know, media coverage is, is few and far between, let's be honest. But even from just uh, getting your internal message right and getting buy-in and getting uniformity and being able to talk about who you are and what you stand for before you go to your external stakeholders, which may include the media, but it also includes a lot of other different people. I, I couldn't agree more with the inside-out strategy and if you're not taking care of those people internally, you have no chance externally to be able to talk with any sort of um, clarity about who you are and what you stand for. In my most recent role, I wore a variety of hats, one of which was Hillrom's spokesperson. So did a bunch of TV, a bunch of radio, newsprint, whatever, blah, blah, blah. My parents are very excited. I could care less. It's part of the job. <laughs> However, I told you not to tell you this. 90 to 95% of my job over the last six and a half or seven years has been in employee focused. Mm-hmm. My responsibilities to the external world were still there, 
Now, that was part of a, a, a conscious decision to not be so incredibly proactive on the media relations front. Eileen knows this well, mm -hmm. but it doesn't mean that that part wasn't there. But our company's success was not related to my TV skills, I promise you. It was related to the fact that we had an unbelievable culture, a culture that was supported by, by and large, effective communication. And we got it right most of the time. We bungled it, of course, but self-aware enough to know when we bungled it and we were able to make to correct. But um, the media relations part, the external communications part is critically important when you've got something solid behind it. Right. Amen to that. Very good. Amen. Awesome. Yeah, it's tend to your own garden first. That is some <laughs> fantastic closing advice from our amazing guest and my super dear friend, uh, Howard Karish. And I just want to thank you. And I know Rob shares this sentiment. We're so grateful for you being our guest today and for sharing some fantastic advice, very sound, actionable, um, and insightful um, concepts that you walked us through today. And we really appreciate you taking time to do that. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. I, I, this was a lot of fun. It's great to see you both. And thank you for having me. You were terrific. Absolutely terrific and spot on on, on so many fronts. Thank you. And that's going to do it for today's edition of Can You Hear Me? I'm Eileen Rochford. And I'm Rob Johnson. We thank you for listening. And remember, you can listen to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts, Apple, Google, Spotify, and much more. And we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening.